Hello, and welcome to the Hardcore Zen Podcast. My name is Brad Warner. I am your host. I am the author of Hardcore Zen, The Other Side of Nothing, Letters to a Dead Friend about Zen, Sit Down and Shut Up, Don't Be a Jerk, and many other fine books about Zen Buddhism and other stuff. This podcast is sponsored by your donations. If you want to donate to me, go to the URL hardcorezen.info slash donate. That is hardcorezen.info slash donate. There you will find links to my PayPal and Patreon accounts. Those are my main and usually only ways of making a living. So I appreciate your support. But as always, if you don't want to support me, you don't have to. All right. In a recent episode of my YouTube channel, I talked about whether Dogen was the first Buddhist feminist. And it just so happens that I came across this recording you're about to hear from March 18th, 2016, in which I am talking about that very subject. I had just finished the chapter in the book Don't Be a Jerk, and it had been edited by my editors and stuff, and it was ready to go. So I read it to a captive audience at a retreat at Mount Baldy Zen Center, and we had a little discussion about it, and I thought this might be interesting to those of you who watched the YouTube video. So let's take a listen. I had to do some kind of fussy editing with this because the recording was damaged in some places, like digitally damaged. There were dropouts and stuff. So you won't actually hear me read the book chapter to the audience. I substituted instead the audiobook version of me reading that chapter. And then I switched back to the actual audience recording because there was a lot of noise and stuff in the in the part of the recording where I read the chapter from the book. But uh, that's all that I've done. I, I've cut out a couple little other bits because they were noisy, but that's about all I did, so you're not missing much. Anyway, here you go. Here is me at Mount Baldy in March of 2016 talking about whether Dogen was the first Buddhist feminist. I was going to read one thing, and then I... I I don't know if my head count is right, but I believe we, for the first time, have got more women than men on a retreat. So I think it's like two-thirds, actually. It's two-thirds, so this is going to be, I don't know, a historical moment in Dogen's Sangha, I suppose. It's often slanted two-thirds on the other direction. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's usually the other, the other way, the proportions. So in honor of that, I, I decided I'd shift gears and read a different passage from the one I had kind of prepared. Uh, I, at first I thought about bringing the real, a real Dogen translation with me and reading from that, but uh, instead I'm going to read you my uh, dummy Dogen translation. Uh, this, this little piece, this is a book I just put out and people... I, I, every time you put out a book, one of the things that publishers do is they they uh, put out a thing of talking points about the book. And usually they, in my case, I don't I don't know if this is true for every other author, but in my case, they ask me to try to suggest the talking points. Probably they do that for everybody. And I'm always, excuse me, hard pressed because sometimes I don't know what the good points are. But when I when I put together the talking points in this, I one of the talking points I put in the list was uh, was Dogen the first Buddhist feminist. And it seems like in the interviews I've been getting, 
almost every interviewer picks up on that one and asks me that question, uh, you know, in, ignoring the other questions sometimes. So I would like to read to you the chapter that that is the reason for me suggesting that. Uh, and as I said, I'm going to read you the, the dummy version. I think what I'll do... I'll just read you the Dogen or my my version of Dogen. Just for those of you who don't know, what I've done with this book is I've taken Shobo Genzo and rewritten it in my own words uh, based on, mostly on my teacher's English translation, but also based on the original Japanese and the Kazuaki Tanahashi translation and uh, the uh, Koei Nishiyama translation and a bunch of other translations that I was able to find. And this chapter that I'm going to read to you is called um, Daihai Tokuzui which means prostrating to that which has attained the marrow, which sounds really cute and Buddhisty, But um, attaining the marrow is a reference to a story about Bodhidharma when <clears throat> he was describing one of his... Uh, was it... When Bodhidharma was uh, talking about one of his students uh, understanding him very well, he said, this student has got my marrow, you know, the marrow of my bones, has got the deep understanding. So, I'm just going to read it to you. And this is, as you, as I've said three times already, this is my version, so that Dogen's words may differ <laughs> slightly. But I tried to get the, uh, the, word, the, the meaning across. The most difficult thing about practicing Zazen is finding a good teacher. A good teacher, whether male or female, needs to be a strong person. The word I'm translating as strong person here is daijobu. In modern Japanese, this word just means all right. But it's actually a Confucian term meaning literally a stout fellow. Thus, Dogen has to make a point of saying whether male or female here. The person should be someone who has that unspeakable it quality. That's almost literally what Dogen says here. He says, inmonin. The first two characters are a Chinese word meaning it or what, and are used by Dogen to indicate something that can't be named. The third character just means person. There, sorry for interrupting again here, in Japanese the subject of a sentence can be omitted if it's understood. Dogen doesn't say he or she in this section. He just leaves the subject unstated. Clearly, he means a person of either gender, since he's already said a good teacher is beyond appearances of male or female. Danjo nado no soni arazu, which I paraphrased just now as whether male or female. I'm saying they here rather than he or she or s slash he, because it's just easier and reads more naturally, especially if you're reading it out loud. I know this usage is not necessarily grammatically sound. And now back to Dogen. They're not a person of the past and present, but they might have the naturally mystical spirit of a wild fox. This is the face of someone who has totally gotten wise to what Buddha was all about. They may be a guide or benefactor. They are never unclear about cause and effect. They may be you, me, him, or her. Once we meet a good teacher we should throw away everything else and just get on with it. 
We should train with all our heart and mind and train when we have no heart and mind or train when we have half a heart and mind. We should learn about walking on tiptoes as the Buddha did and about putting out fires on our heads. This is a reference to the idea that Buddhist training is as urgent as putting out a fire on your head. When we do this, demons can never mess with us. The person who cut off his own arm for his teacher, as Taiso Eka was said to have done for his teacher Bodhidharma, is none other than you. The master who drops off body and mind is you yourself. You can get the truth by sincerity and trust. This is not something that comes from the outside, but is also not a direction that emerges from within. You leave the workaday world and make your home in the truth. If you regard yourself as more important than the Dharma, you'll never get the Dharma. So don't take yourself too seriously. Those who regard the Dharma as truly more important than themselves have the right humble attitude. Just rely on whatever has the truth, whether it's a lamppost or a stop sign or a Buddha, whether it's a stray dog, a demon or a god, or a man or a woman. Yes, Dogen equates women with stray dogs and demons here, but note that he also equates men with stray dogs and demons. It is common to be born with a body and mind, but to meet the Dharma is really rare. Shakyamuni Buddha said, When you meet teachers who expound the supreme state of enlightenment, don't worry about their race or caste. Don't get hung up on their looks and don't judge their conduct. Because you receive their wisdom, feed them thousands of pounds of gold every day, give them flowers, bow to them, and never get ticked off at them. Ever since I got enlightened, that's what I've been doing, and look at me, I'm Buddha. So look to trees and stones to be your teachers. This refers to an ancient Buddhist story in which a demon tells a child bodhisattva the first two lines of a poem and then tells the child he's too hungry to tell him the last two lines. The child offers his own body as food for the demon in exchange for the last two lines. As he's dying, the child writes these lines on nearby trees and stones in his own blood. The poem goes, All actions are inconsistent. Arising and passing is concretely existent. After arising and passing cease, this is quiet, this is peace. It's an okay poem, but not worth getting eaten by a demon for, if you ask me. Even fields and villages might preach to you, as it says in the Lotus Sutra. Question lamp posts and investigate fences and walls. There's a good story about Indra, the most powerful of the Hindu gods, asking a wild dog to be his master, and Indra was regarded as a great bodhisattva, so the status of a teacher clearly doesn't matter. Even so, dumb heads who don't listen to the Buddha Dharma think, I'm a senior monk, I can't learn from a junior monk, or I'm an ordained master, I can't bow to someone who's not a master and other such dopey things. Dunces like these are totally hopeless. Master Joshu Jushin said, I shall question anyone who is superior to me, even a seven-year-old kid. I shall teach anyone whose understanding is inferior to mine, 
even a hundred-year-old codger. When a female monk who has attained the truth becomes the master of a temple, male and female monks alike will join her order and bow to her, asking about the Dharma. It's like a thirsty person finding a soda machine. Master Rinzai Gigen grabbed Master Kankei Shikan when Shikan came to visit him. Shikan said, I get it. Rinzai let go and said he would let Shikan hang out for a while. From that point on, Shikan was Rinzai's disciple. Shikan left Rinzai and visited the female master, Matsuzan Ryonen. She asked him where he had come from. Shikan said, from the front door. Matsuzan said, how come you're naked then? This was her way of saying it was better to just be polite than try to give a goofy Zen answer. Shikan was speechless and just bowed to her. Shikan asked Matsuzan later, what is Matsuzan? Matsuzan, whose name, like those of many Buddhist masters, was also the name of the mountain where she lived, said, Matsuzan never shows her peak. Shikan said, No, I meant who is the person who lives in the mountain. Matsuzan said, It's beyond male or female. Shikan said, So why don't you change? Matsuzan said, I am not the ghost of a wild fox. Why change? The ghost of a wild fox means someone who is deceptive. Shikan didn't know what to say to that, so he just bowed. Eventually, Shikan became a vegetable gardener at Matsuzan's temple and stayed there for three years. When Shikan became a master, he told his monks, I got half a dipper at Papa Rinzai's place and half a dipper at Mama Matsuzan's place. Now I've drunk a whole dipper full and am completely satisfied. Shikan's respect for Matsuzan is a good example to us all. The nun Myoshin was the disciple of Kyozan Ejaku. When the chief of the temple business affairs office retired, Kyozan asked his assembly who they thought was most qualified. Everyone agreed that even though Myoshin was a woman, she had the balls to do the job. They actually said she was Daijobu, which you'll recall means a big stout fellow. In other words, they said that even though she was a woman, she had the balls for the job. One day, Myoshin was listening to 17 visiting monks having a really dumb argument about an old Buddhist story concerning a flag waving in the wind. In the story, two monks were watching a flag flapping in the wind and arguing over whether it was the flag moving or the wind moving. Their master heard this and told them it wasn't the flag or the wind, it was their minds moving. When Myoshin heard the 17 monks arguing about this, she said, Geez, oh Pete, how many sandals have they worn out in vain visiting temples if that's the best they can do? They overheard her, but they didn't resent her criticism. Instead, they asked what she thought of the story they were discussing. Come here, she said. While they were walking towards her, she said, This is not the wind moving. It's not a flag moving. It's not the mind moving. The 17 monks were impressed, so they bowed and became her students. This is the authentic Buddhist way. Even if a monk is senior, if he doesn't understand the Dharma, what good is he? A leader needs clear eyes, but how many of them are just like a bunch of village idiots? Some of these dopes refuse to be taught by female teachers who are clearly their superiors, 
What a bunch of dim-witted weenies. Over in China, if a female monk becomes a master, everybody respects her. The male monks listen to her. This is an established tradition. Any male monk, regardless of his attainment, will bow and listen to a female monk who understands the Dharma. Why should men be higher? Emptiness is emptiness. The elements are the elements. Men and women are both able to attain the highest truth. Everyone who attains the truth deserves to be revered. Don't worry about whether they're male or female. In China, there's a word that translates as householder. It means a working person as opposed to a monk. Some live in actual houses and some don't. But if a householder attains the truth, monks should bow down and ask for his or her teachings just as they would of an ordained master. Even a girl of seven can be a guide to monks if she's got the truth. We should venerate such a person just as we'd venerate an ordained master. That's the time-honored tradition, and those who don't know it are pitiful. Since ancient times, there have been female emperors both here in Japan and in China. We treat female emperors with as much respect as male emperors. So when a female monk becomes enlightened, we respect her just as we do a male monk. If we fail to venerate such a person, it's like failing to venerate our own supreme state. Such dim bulbs insult the Dharma. If you just shave your head and look like a monk, but don't know even this, you're not worthy of being called a monk. People here in Japan follow such lousy customs of denigrating female monks without even realizing what a bunch of doofuses they are. These days, really stupid people think of women only as objects of sexual greed. Disciples of the Buddha must not be like this. If anything that someone could possibly lust over should be hated, then all men should be hated too. As for stuff people get their pervy jollies from, any damn thing can be the object. A man can be the object, or a woman, or what is neither man nor woman, or dreams and fantasies. There have been impure acts done while looking at images in water or looking up at the sun. Should we discard every single thing that could possibly be the object of lust? The old Buddhist precepts say, The abuse of the male or female sex organs is an offense, and the offender must be expelled from the community. This being so, if we hated whatever might become the object of sexual greed, then all men and all women would hate each other. There are non-Buddhists who become celibate but still have wrong views and wrong understanding. There are Buddhist lay people who are married and have better understanding than those people. Even in ancient China, there was an asinine monk who said, In every life, in every age, I shall never look at a woman. What kind of morality is that crap based on? Is that Buddhism? Why would you say all women are bad? Why would you say all men are good? There are bad men and good women. Before they cut through their delusions, both men and women are equally delusional. If a man vows never to look at a woman, must he disregard women when it comes to his oath to save all beings? This vow is like something a wino might mumble on a three-day bender. Don't be like that guy. Look. If we hate others for the mistakes they've committed in the past, we should hate all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas too. 
we'd have to hate everyone. Where's the compassion in that? Here in Japan, we have a particularly laughable institution called Places of Seclusion, or Mahayana Practice Places. Female monks and female lay people are not allowed to enter these places. This wrong custom has been with us so long that people don't even know how ludicrous it is. You could split a gut laughing at how absurd this is. Dogen really does say you could split a gut. Who are the men of authority who made up this garbage? Are they some kind of saints? Moreover, if something shouldn't be changed just because it's an ancient tradition, shouldn't we give up the whole Buddhist training thing just because the ancient tradition in our country is just to bumble through life aimlessly? Shakyamuni Buddha established our tradition, and he admitted both men and women to his order. So what kind of so-called Buddhist order has no women in it? There have been women who were as fully enlightened as anyone else, so what kind of place could exist that enlightened women should be banned from just because they're women? Those who exclude women from places of practice are a bunch of idiots. Yet in such places as these, any man, even if he's a total douchebag, can randomly show up and hang out. What sense is there in that? Whatever comes into this great world sanctified by Buddha is completely covered with Buddha's virtue. They will get free from all their attachments. When one direction is sanctified, the whole universe is sanctified. Those who establish and maintain male-only sanctuaries don't understand that the whole universe is sanctified. They think their little sanctuary is so special. Let's hope they get over their stupor soon so they don't violate the whole world. Who could deny that the very act of bowing to that which has attained the marrow is the truth itself? Written at Kanondori Kosho Horinji Temple on the day of the summer equinox, 1240. So that's, that's it. That's the, uh, that's the chapter in which I base this whole um, uh, Dogen is the first Buddhist feminist question on. And I actually had to cut this down uh, quite a bit. Uh, he, his, uh, he goes, what did I say in here? Well, I don't remember. Uh, for, for, every, for every little dig he gets at people who, who in, in this version, at people who think men are superior to women, there, there's probably five more that I, that I left out because he just goes on and on and on. He gets, he gets a little bit too <clears throat> excited, I think. Um, but you have to remember, he's writing in Japan in the year 1240. Uh, this, uh, this was kind of a, uh, a given uh, in Japanese culture at that time that, that women were inferior to men uh, in, in all ways, not just spirituality. So, um, and he was probably, it says he's written, it was written on the summer retreat, and I, I believe, although it's, it's, it's kind of a bit of a, a question uh, but I believe that Dogen's, um, the Kanondori Hosho Horinji temple was probably um, a male-only temple, uh, and that uh, there was another temple for, for women. They would have, they would have separated them. Uh, however, uh, it's, it's been coming to light as people research this that, uh, that this might n- 
not have always been the case. Uh, there, there's just, we don't know all there is to know about how things were done back then because the records are, the funny thing about history is people in the old days weren't concerned these days. They, they didn't even think to write down certain things that, that we were like, well, what was the deal back there? So um, it's possible there were, there were um, women in his temple. But I would, I would guess that uh, the reason Dogen wrote this is he must have come up against this attitude uh, among some of his, uh, some of his monks. Um, and I, I just want to point out a few things, that's why I keep looking down at the book, that, that I, I put in here, because I did some research uh, a little bit. Um, I'm not much of a researcher, but, uh, but for this one I did a bit. Um, the, uh, the track record uh, of Buddhism as it addresses women is a mixed bag. Um, maybe I should just read what I wrote instead of trying to um, paraphrase it. And I, 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 I kind of have this aversion to reading out loud to people, but, you know, whatever. This, this is what I wrote here. Um, blah, 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 blah. Um, according to, to tradition, uh, the Buddha first established a male-only monastic order. When certain women who had listened to his teaching, including the wife he left behind when he decided to pursue the truth and the woman who raised him after his mother died, asked to join the group, he refused. At this point, his chief attendant, a guy named Ananda, asked the Buddha if women were any less intelligent than men. Uh, The Buddha said no, they were just as intelligent. Then Ananda asked if women were any less capable than men of realizing the truth. The Buddha again said no, women were just as capable as men of realizing the truth. Then why can't they join our order, Ananda asked. At this point, the Buddha gave in and said that women could join. However, uh, the Buddha is supposed to have said that allowing women to join the order would cause the order to decline and finally disappear entirely in 500 years. Um, This is 2,500 years ago, so he was wrong. Um, The mixed male-female order would not last as long, he said, as the all-boys club he had first established. We know now that this was not true, but we're not really sure that Buddha even said it. In her book, Women of the Way, uh, Sally Tisdale goes into great detail on the subject of women's historical involvement in Buddhist practice. Um, it's a real good book, and I, and I borrowed it for a while, and I finally managed to get my own copy of it a couple weeks ago, so I just, I just got my own copy. Um, her research into the subject has led her to question the historical veracity of this traditional account. It may be that this story was a later invention or a mythologized summation of a few hundred years of the experiences of various people within the Buddhist lineages. Uh, maybe she's right. Maybe, uh, sorry, most of these ancient stories are fairly dubious as historical accounts. Whatever the case, strong myth of Buddhist literature that seems to be totally at odds with the story that the Buddha himself did not regard women as inferior creatures. Tisdale quotes a sutra that says, the dead snake and the dog are, as de- are detestable, but women are even more detestable than they are. Another Chinese Buddhist saying she discovered says, if there were no women, every man would be a bodhisattva. And one more says, the best thing about Buddhist heaven is that there are no women. <laughs> and my, my original comment on that was, was something like, that doesn't sound like heaven to me, but, but my publishers thought that that was somehow lurid or sexist, so I changed it to the following. So I guess Buddhist, so I guess Buddhist heaven is like the He-Man Woman Haters Club from the old Little Rascals comedy. 
I don't know. You tell me if that was my original version was sexist. At any rate, it doesn't sound much like of a heaven to me. Oh, I did put it in, but anyway, whatever. Um, women were seen as obstruction uh, to men's study and practice of the Buddhist way. One very early piece of Buddhist literature that Tisdale cites, uh, the Anguttara Nikaya says, I see no other single form so enticing, so desirable, so intoxicating, so binding, so distracting, such a hindrance to winning the unsurpassed peace from effort as a woman's form. Whoa. Uh, these are just a few examples of the attitudes Dogen is responding to in this essay. There are a whole lot more where these came from. Dogen is going against a very, very strong tide of tradition here. In that sense, I think it's perfectly fair to retroactively call him a feminist. We have to remember that Dogen lived a very long time ago in a world radically different from ours, so we need to cut him a little bit of slack when his attitudes are not quite in line with those of current feminism. Still, there's nothing in this particular essay or in any of the records of Dogen's life and work that make him sound like anything less than a true feminist in the contemporary sense of the word. To be fair about some of the anti-female rhetoric that occurs in Buddhism, I don't think, and this is my opinion, this is, you know, I don't think most of it was initially intended as a put-down of women. By that I mean that the writers were prob probably weren't trying to send a message to women saying, hey gals, you're terrible. Rather, they were heterosexual men trying hard to cope with celibacy and trying to help other hetero men by, to do so by saying, hey guys, the celibacy thing is tough, but if you think of women this way, maybe you'll be able to deal with it better. It's a lousy strategy, if you ask me. Obviously, it had the unfortunate consequence of making celibate male monks think of women as almost demonic creatures and led to some of the discriminatory practices Dogen denounces in this essay. Uh, this foolishness is still practiced... Uh, wow, here's what I wrote. This foolishness is still practiced today even by Western converts to certain traditions. Personally, I have no respect at all for that kind of nonsense, no matter how ancient or traditional it is. Uh, by the way, I do not particularly care if you are offended by my attitude. I find this repugnant, misogynistic practice far more offensive than you could possibly find my attitude toward it. Um, because people get pissy if you, if you say, if you say you know, bad things about this tradition of not, you know, men not shaking women's hands or, or averting their eyes when a woman walks by. It's, it's fucked up. It's really fucked up, and they should just stop it. Um, but, but people will get mad if you, if you denounce it because it's my right as a religious person or whatever. <laughs> you know, fine, whatever you want. Um, I am amazed every time I read this part of Shobo Genzo that a man of Dogen's era was brave enough to say some of these things he says here. It makes me very happy to be part of that lineage, uh, and etc., etc. Uh, I think I found some other bits. Let's see if I found anything else. Um, oh, yeah, this is another little thing I'll read to you, and then maybe we can just stop reading things. Um, in 2009, there was a huge ruckus when the Australian branch of the Thai forest Buddhist tradition ordained four women as monks. Their parent order back in Thailand expelled the Australian branch from the order. The Thai group's view was that even though Shakyamuni Buddha did establish an order of female monks, that specific order of female monks vanished a few hundred years ago, and nobody but Shakyamuni Buddha himself had the right to reestablish it. Uh, this kind of thinking igno ignores the fact that there have been female Buddhist monks in many other branches of the tradition. Anyway, that's what they said. Forgive me for thinking the real reason was because they were just a bunch of sexist jerks. 
Um, the idea that only Shakyamuni Buddha himself could establish a monastic order of Buddhists is too absurd to even consider. I really think that's borne out in, in the words of Shakyamuni Buddha. He never claimed any sort of uh, supernatural authority or anything. So the, you know, I think that's a really lame, stupid excuse, you know, if they're saying only Shakyamuni Buddha can say, fuck you. Anyway, um, <laughs> lots of people I met at the time who were part of the Thai forest Buddhist tradition wrung their hands over what to do. They were already committed to the tradition, but how could they go on? I personally thought it was a no-brainer. If I found out that an order of Buddhists I belonged to did this, I'd drop them like a hot potato. But I can see the dilemma. They had a group logic of remaining in the order and fighting against this kind of idiocy. The controversy over this incident mainly had to do with money and institutional power. The conservative sexists back in Thailand and elsewhere who had funded the Australian temples didn't want to support people who didn't follow their own ridiculous customs. But the Australians couldn't abide by customs that were so nonsensical. In the end, Ajahn Brahm, the guy who did the ordinations, was expelled, but he carried on in spite of it. Um, here's another little thing. Uh, even in the Soto Zen tradition, there's what Dogen said and there's what people really do. For example, Eheji, the temple that Dogen established, is these days an all-boys club. There's no specific rule against women practicing at, at Eheji. It's just understood that they don't. Uh, that's the way they do things in Japan. Um, there's a lot of unwritten laws in Japan. Sally Tisdale writes of asking the monk who took her on a, tour, on a guided tour of Eheji about this. He said that officially women could practice at Eheji, but we have no facilities for them. Uh, that's a lame excuse, but it's kind of typical of the Japanese way of dealing stuff. I guess I already said that. Uh, oh, and then um, I mentioned the, uh, uh, the practice of allowing monks to marry. Um, well, I'll read it. It's not long. Uh, most training temples in Japan these days are single gender. A few are mixed, but not many, and most of those are places where Westerners train. There's, uh, there also, uh, this also goes for the subject of monks who marry. In the late 19th century, Japan eliminated the laws requiring monks to be celibate and to refrain from eating meat. And there's a specific class of laws which I could, wish I could remember the Japanese word for, but it means like um, sex and meat laws. Uh, they, they, they were struck, struck and stricken from the books in the uh, late 19th century. Uh, it seems pretty odd to us in the West, but these monastic regulations had become matters of law. The reason is that Japan has long been a very socially stratified society with something very similar to the caste system in India. One way to leave your specific caste was to declare that you become a monk, since monks were considered to be outside that system. As you might expect, many people declared themselves monks just to escape the caste system. So laws were put into place requiring monks to behave like monks. In the medieval period, there were times when being caught eating meat or having sex if you were a monk was punishable by death. I decided at the beginning of this retreat I was only going to do like Dogen's real spiritual chapters and, and, uh, and save the, the other ones for, for another time. <coughs> Since we only got 15 minutes, is there any commentary or question? I just think it's amazing things? that he wrote that when he did. And when did women get the right to vote? Like 1920. I mean, that's insane. Yeah. Read all that. He was that forward-thinking. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing, and, and I often wonder 
if there's a story behind it. Uh, but Dogen didn't leave behind any any story <laughs> uh, that would uh, that would account for this this view. But but one one wonders um, if there was. I really don't know. Um, I think uh, I have, you spent a long time in Japan, right? Yeah, eleven years. Yeah. Uh, so I've heard, and, and you can confirm or it's still pretty sexist. Society. Yeah, it generally is. Yeah. So, and uh, I'm just drawing a parallel to uh, Buddha denounced the caste system in his own time. Yeah. And uh, the caste system still exists in India. Yeah. Twenty five hundred years after Buddha denounced it, and there's still sexism in, in Japan. Yeah. Uh, Eight hundred years after Dogen. Yeah. And maybe, maybe Do- the story behind Dogen writing that is just that he was a genius. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. I, the, I mean, that's yeah. the story behind a lot of why Dogen wrote the things he wrote is he was just smarter than everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting, and uh, like I said, I wish I knew. Yeah. If there was a specific story, but maybe there's no story at all. Maybe he just he just saw this for himself yeah. and went, "Yeah, this is stupid." Do you know much about his suffering? Not a whole lot. Uh, he he only wrote a little bit, and there's some some stuff that his later students wrote down. He um, his both his parents were dead by the time he was seven years old. Uh, I'm not sure who raised him between the ages of 7 and 12 when he decided to go into monastic practice. Um, I'm not even sure. One of the fascinating... Sorry, this is a slightly side subject, but um, I never was able to track down... It's one of the things I wanted to do for this book, what Dogen's real name was. I mean, he, Dogen is a Dharma name. You know, it's a name he was given on his ordination. And uh, apparently he must have left behind his, his birth name after that. There's some speculation that he might have been uh, Matsumoto or something like that. Uh, but nobody's really sure. I find that not a whole lot. Um, in the movie Zen, which you can find on YouTube in a subtitled version, uh, they put in a few sort of speculative scenes. Uh, and in those scenes... He's got uh, a female monk who who's kind of hangs out with him, and we do know that at the end of his life, he the last uh, two or three years of his life, he was very ill, and he eventually died from something, uh, which might have been tuberculosis, uh, and it was it was a female uh, monk, I believe she was a monk, who was his attendant and stayed with him uh, through that period. Um, and we know that he had uh, female students. Uh, I think I wrote down some of their names in there. And as John pointed out, and I looked up um, later to get a little bit more information, his, I believe, third-generation uh, successor, Kazan? Uh, is it K? No, not Kazan. It's the other. Gasan? Okay. Anyway. Um, or- Are you talking about who wrote the biography? No, no, who ordained all the women. Gossam that, that's Gossam Zenji. Um, ordained a lot, of, a lot of women as, as temple masters. Uh, 30, I think, is the number. A lot of men, too. Ordained a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and transmitted a lot of people. Transmitted a lot of people. So, uh, so we know that. But, yeah. He's a bit of mystery, yeah. Yeah, I'm wondering, um, when Norman was in China, that how much he got into the Chinese uh, scriptures there are 
in China there are a lot of, or other scriptures where there are a lot of uh, female yeah. teachers. Yeah. So I'm well, he probably, I mean, he's definitely aware of those because he cites some of them in, in, the, in the essay itself. Um, so, yeah, he, he, knew, he knew that was going on. Um, he mentions Matsuzan. I think he, he mentions a few others that he admires. And it's interesting because there, there's been a long tradition uh, within Buddhism of, uh, of uh, female uh, masters. Um, and I, I don't know. I was thinking of it. I ought to do some research. I don't know of any comparable sort of Western tradition where um, women were that well represented. Um, maybe somebody does. I don't know. In the, the Lotus Sutra and the Vimalakirti Sutra have stories either... Um, promoting women as being capable of enlightenment mm -hmm. or both promoting women as being capable of enlightenment and making fun of men who... In the Lotus Sutra? Well, the Vimala Kirti Sutra. Okay. There's this enlightened uh, goddess and she, um, uh, Ananda, or one of the Buddhist monks says, you're enlightened and you have magic powers, why don't you just turn yourself into a man? And so, um, what she does to answer the question for him is she trades bodies with him, so he becomes a woman, oh. <laughs> and he freaks out, and then... Take that, Ananda. And then, and, then, and then they trade back, and then she gives him a little lecture yeah. about not being such a tool. <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting when I when I was I was talking I was sort of chatting about this to uh, my friend Geshin who's a Buddhist nun uh, who's back in San Francisco now but lived in Japan a long time and she was she was real supportive of what I'd written and, and but she also said well yeah it's just typical that that a man me gets patted on the back for pointing this out when women have been saying this stuff for years so <laughs> but you know oh well. I, I told her I don't feel that padded, uh, but <laughs> but uh, you know, it, it it's one of those aspects of Dogen that I don't think gets uh, as much airplay as it should. Um, it you know a lot of a lot of biographies just sort of skip it over, or or people kind of talking about him just kind of um, fail to mention that, and and I think it's pretty significant, especially coming at the time that it did. Uh, and, and, and in light of the fact that it's, you know, like I said in the book, there's, there's what Dogen said and there's what people do. So, you know, it's sort of um, reverted back. It's, it's an interesting thing, though, what, what we have. Um, Tassahara was, I believe, the first Zen monastery established outside of Asia. If it wasn't the first, it was among the first. Um, and it was established in... Uh, in the uh, the Bay Area, uh, Carmel Valley, in I believe n no earlier than 1969, but I think more like 1970 or 71. Uh, and and of course, given the time and place, they they it was kind of went without saying that it was going to be an integrated, you know, it wasn't going to be a male only monastery like you would have in Japan or a female only monastery. Um, and this created a certain specific set of problems for them that they didn't have any historical precedent to fall back on to, to try to figure out what to do. You know, like, like you know, segregating the bathhouses or, or the, the toilets or, or, or the quarters, you know, where people would sleep. Um, 
there were uh, married couples coming down there. The, even though monks can marry in, in Japan, what's happened, and this, this is information I got from, from Geshin, and any errors are mine, um, so if I get this wrong, don't blame her, but I'm trying to remember what she told me from practicing over there. Um, she practiced in one of the few, one of a handful of uh, male-female integrated uh, practice places, monasteries in Japan. And she said that while it's commonplace for male monks in Japan to get married, it's almost unheard of for female monks uh, to get married in Japan these days. And there, like I, like I mentioned, there's no, it's just like the thing with Aheji, there's no rule against it, but it's just, it's just not done. Um, there, there may be examples here and there of people who've done it, but it's just generally not done. The other thing is, if you are married and you go into training, whether you're a man or a woman, uh, you train. Uh, you would normally, typically, train uh, a, you know, in a in a single gender monastery, or whatever, um, uh, without your your spouse being present. Whereas in America, it's become kind of a thing where people just go in and, and do it together, uh, which is also unprecedented. So it it means um, things are changing. And I think one of the, one of the great things I, I like about Buddhism is that it is not supposed to be uh, fixed in a, a, an ancient tradition. It is an ancient tradition, and it has this body of of learning and practice that goes back a couple of thousand years. But there's there's not this idea that you find in a lot of religions where the pristine original form of it is what we are attempting to emulate. Uh, it's allowed to change. Now, having said that, as I mentioned in the reading piece, there there are people in Thailand uh, who apparently don't believe that, who who think that only Shakyamuni can establish an order of of monks, which is which is as I said ten minutes ago ridiculous because Shakyamuni himself. Um, uh, Presented a, a, a form in which you know his successors were intended to uh, to keep up with the times and keep up with the changes uh, that that were um, that were to go on. Um, and the, the other thing that happened in San Francisco uh, a little later is um, you know I keep using the word single gender and I know some people these days um, react strongly to to the idea that there are only two genders. Um, that's that's become an issue uh, with uh, with um, with Tassajara. Your biological gender determines where you um, where you take a bath and where you use the toilet. Um, and uh, I remember practicing one there one year in the summer where there was a um, uh, a transgender uh, person who identified as female but uh, was born male. Um, she. Uh, she just decided to just follow the deal, and she bathed with um, with us, <laughs> with the with the dudes. Um, so um, so uh, so that's the way that is. All right, there you go. That was me talking about whether Dogen was the first Buddhist feminist. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to donate to me making more of these podcasts, please go to the URL hardcorezen.info/donate. That is hardcorezen. Dot info slash donate. That is the way these podcasts are supported by your donations. But as always, I offer this for free, so you don't got to donate if you don't want to donate. We'll see you next time. Have a good time all the time. Bye.